From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Battlefield Podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Faint, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing here on Battlefields, please download and share this episode and leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guest is author and Vietnam War veteran Larry Freeland. Larry served in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne Division as an infantry officer and CH-47 helicopter pilot. He has been a banker, financial consultant, and college instructor, and he is now retired and living in North Georgia. He enjoys fundraising for cystic fibrosis, volunteering for veterans events, driving his Corvette, and writing books. His latest book is The Patriarch, the first installment in the Legacy of Honor series. You can find out more about Larry and his various projects at LarryFreeland.com. From Vietnam to the boardroom, these are Larry Friedland's Battlefields. Larry, welcome to Battlefields. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and spend some time uh, sharing stories. Well, speaking of stories, I'm really interested to get into your book, The Patriarch, and your ongoing series that you've been writing. But I think for some context, I'd like to start with the beginning. How did you get into the military and what kind of experiences did you have while you were in the Army? Uh, I'll I'll start with a little lineage. I come from a military family, basically. my granddad, which book one is loose, that we're going to talk about later, is loosely based on, on his experience just to some extent. He was a doughboy, an infantryman in World War I. Uh, his son, my dad, Sam Freeland, uh, went into the service right after Pearl Harbor. He was a senior at college at Ohio State in uh, electrical engineering, and he was in their, uh, they didn't call it the ROTC program back then, but it was some kind of a military program that he was in. And uh, when when uh, uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and we went to war, uh, he they accelerated his program since he was a senior and he graduated early with his degree and he was commissioned a second uh, lieutenant. And then he went on to serve in the 8th Air Force in, uh, in, in England and Europe uh, for the war. And then uh, when it ended, he got out for a couple of years, tried his hand in civilian life. And he missed the military life. He missed the comradeship, the sense of purpose, and all those things that draw uh, men and women to serve in the military. So he he went back into the service, and the air it was the Air Force then. Uh, it was the Army Air Corps World War II, and he ended up making it a thirty year career. So I kind I grew up uh, uh, on air bases. Uh, they were called SAG bases, Strategic Air Command uh, bomber bases. I was a little boy. I remember crawling around in uh, B-36s and uh, some B-29s and then uh, never crawled through a B-47 or a B-52, but I was around them during military days and saw them, you know, growing up on SAC bases. We were at Marchfield. We were at uh, Homestead Air Base down South Florida, and we were at the Ramey Air Base in Puerto Rico. So just airplanes were a part of my life. Uh, and uh, 
When I was uh, old enough to go to college, uh, we were living in Puerto Rico. Dad got transferred down there my senior year from South Florida at Homestead. So uh, I graduated down there in, in, in 64 and went, came back to the States. Uh, Dad, was, Dad was stationed there for three years and, and that was the first year we were down there. So for the next two years, I'd go back and forth uh, to the, uh, from there, from Ramey to Tampa, Florida, where I went to college at the University of South Florida. And then he got transferred back to the States at uh, Tyndall Air Base in the Panhandle. So my junior and senior year, I, I would come home there. Uh, but I, uh, I hadn't really had a lot of ambition about going into the military. Well, I'd grown up around, I'd been around World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, knew some World War I veterans. Um, so it certainly was a part of my life and it was an honorable profession, but I felt like, you know, it's not for everybody. I'm not saying at that point it wasn't for me, but we were in the middle of the Vietnam War and this is hard for a lot of people to probably, of, of the newer generations to understand, but as that thing unfolded, uh, the draft became uh, a major source of, of, of manpower, particularly for the army. And towards the end of the, of the war, the Marines were taking some of the draftees too. Um, so that was a bigger part of our life. Um, graduated in 64. Uh, a friend of mine who had graduated the year before down there uh, and went into the Army. And uh, towards the end of our senior year, it was announced that he had been killed in Vietnam. And you know, we're all going, where is Vietnam? What is, what, what's this place? Uh, and it, little we know then, but by 65, 66, it was uh, on the news on a regular basis and was just a part of our life. And it became a fact that uh, if, if you... Uh, didn't volunteer if you were physically able and didn't volunteer for a branch of the service or an MOS, you were going to be drafted. So uh, myself and pretty much everybody else that knew that they were uh, eligible for the draft, you know, was looking for the best opportunities that fit for them and so on. And I thought, growing up on air bases, I, I had a, a, a desire to try flying. I thought you know flying would be fun uh, and so on. And um, by my beginning of my senior year, I really hadn't uh, given it a lot of thought, but uh, back then, again, with the draft, uh, in college, you would get what was called a 2S deferment, as long as you're in college and, and, uh, and, and good grades. Uh, so uh, I would file that paperwork uh, on a quarterly basis. We were on a quarter system back then. Other colleges were semesters, trimesters, and your draft board would, Virtually, if you're going to stay a student, you had to submit that to them in time or you were history. They'd get you. Uh, so uh, my senior year, I thought, well, I'm running out of time here because I'm going to graduate June of 68. And if I don't make a decision and, and get something I think I can live with, uh, they're going to draft me. So I uh, applied to uh, Navy aviation program in the fall of 67. I thought yeah, it'd be kind of cool to fly fighters off of uh, carriers. Well, I got close, but, you know, they no cigar. I didn't quite qualify with some of the testing they ran me through. So I said, well, I'll try the Air Force, which I probably should have done to begin with. And I was accepted to their uh, aviation program in January of 68. But the problem was they were so backed up with their training programs. Uh, you had to go to OC. I wasn't in an ROTC program where I went. They didn't have one. So I had to go to OCS Air Force, and then when you graduate from that, be a second lieutenant, and then you go on to their flight school program, which be extended extensive training. But I'd been uh, I'd, I had to take a test batteries of test pass, and I was sent to McDill where I spent a day getting going through their flight uh, physicals. So I was accepted and notified January in January. You know, I'm on board. I'll, the, the earliest they could start me was October of that year, and looking forward to my you know coming and joining them. 
Well, I graduated in June of 68. And I uh, went down to Daytona for a week to celebrate with some of the fraternity brothers, came back. Uh, we were living in Panama City at Tyndall Base at the time, came back home in the mid late June. And on the bed was my report for your draft physical. Uh, I didn't, uh, you know, I'd graduated and uh, I thought, well, gee, since I'm going to go into the Air Force in a couple months, they'll, they'll give me a def temporary deferment. Long and short, they didn't do it. They drafted me in July. <laughs> so I couldn't get a deferment until October to start the training program. I was drafted in July, um, was sent to Fort Dix, New Jersey, uh, up in, uh, well, you know where that's at, in, in, uh, near New York, and uh, went through basic and advanced infantry training. At that time, most of the people going through training up there in infantry would end up going to replace people coming home from Germany. They weren't going to Nam and, uh, as, as a rule. And a lot of the guys in my training company, about 220 of us, and AIT were from uh, Louisiana National Guard. So they were there for their training, and then they'd go back home and guard Louisiana. And uh, while a lot of the guys th that, were in, uh, that were drafted like me were college grads, and so they were giving us opportunities to go to OCS. And there were three combat, all they had was combat branches, infantry, artillery, and uh, armor. So I volunteered thinking, well, I have an undergraduate degree in math and, and finance, and I'll Go into the artillery, you know, angles and all those cool things. Uh, well, everybody that volunteered got OCS infantry. So uh, I was sent down to Fort Dix in January, uh, the first couple of days of January, for the OCS program. Uh, went uh, went there and, and graduated the end of June, going into July, and was a second lieutenant. Uh, and that was in uh, 1969, July of 69. And everybody that graduated with uh, back then again in uh, infantry uh, OCS, second lieutenant, after six months was going to go to Vietnam as a platoon leader in some capacity in the infantry because that's what we were trained for. So I, I was stationed at Benning uh, at the infantry school as an instructor for a while. Uh, and uh, in, in that capacity and some of the other things I did, I met a lot of helicopter pilots. And they said, well, Larry, you know, you might want to give thought to going to Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. You know, infantry guys and helicopter pilots have rough days, he said, they would tell me. But uh, at least as a pilot, you maybe get to sleep in a cot and get a hot meal once in a while and a hot shower. And you wouldn't be out in the, what we call the boondocks or the boonies all the time. So I thought, you know, I kind of wanted to fly. I applied, got accepted, went to flight school for a year, and was trained to fly a Huey and then a Chinook. And that was the uh, year of 1970. In the middle of that, I, uh, I had met my wife before, well, after I finished OCS at uh, Fort Benning and that between the graduation and the end of the year. And we dated. And then about halfway through my flight school, we decided to get married. So we, we got married in June of, of 1970. I finished flight school and I was shipped to Vietnam uh, the third or fourth day of January of 1971 uh, to start my year of uh, service over there. So, uh, I uh, got I got there, spent a year. That's an inter. Uh, you know, I could talk about that a little bit. Um, see, we got uh, 71. It was like January the third or fourth. Uh, left uh, Panama City. I left my wife with at Panama City, living next door to my parents. My father had just gotten out of the service. He retired after 30 years and was building his retirement home there in Bay County on the on the on the uh, in the bay on the bay. And they were staying in an apartment there because it would take them about a year or so. So uh, I wanted Linda next to my parents in case something were to happen. She had, 
you talk about courage. She had actually lost her first husband in Vietnam uh, about four or five months before I met her on a blind date. He was oh, wow. a, yeah, he was an infantry man with the 80, 82nd Airborne and was killed on his third combat mission in Vietnam. He hadn't even been there 30 days. Uh, so that was, a, on her part, that was a little, what can you say about that? She marries a helicopter pilot and an infantry guy, and he's going over. <laughs> it doesn't get much more risky than that, I think. Uh, so anyway, uh, I wanted her next to my parents in case something was to happen. And of course, that worked out real well. She lived there next door in another apartment for the year that I was gone. Uh, my tour in Vietnam, um, when I left, we flew, uh, well, we flew out of Fort, actually uh, the air base next to Fort Dix. I can't remember the name of it right now. And we flew to Alaska, spent a couple hours there, and then I flew into Japan, Tokyo, a couple hours there, and then we flew into Tonsonu. And uh, when we got to uh, over the airspace in Tonsonu, the pilot comes on the uh, radio or the announcement system and says, gentlemen, if you look out or right on the left side of the aircraft, you'll see uh, we're over South Vietnam, your new home for however long you're going to be here. But we haven't got clearance to land. We're going into a holding pattern. Uh, Tonsonu is under rocket attack. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just got here. <laughs> so he finally gets clearance and he says, okay, we're clear. We're going down. We're going to fall fast. When we land, we'll taxi over to an area. They're going to open all the doors. The guys are going to come in, hustle you out. And then we're going to refuel, bring in the guys that are going home and, and get out of here. And that's just what they did when he said, we're going in. He just literally fell right out of the sky, landed, taxied over to a, an area. Doors opened up and my gosh, uh, you probably hear this a lot from Vietnam veterans, but the first time you get exposed to the, uh, to the South Vietnamese air, particularly in that, in that area, you just bam, it hits you. It's hot, it's humid, it smells, it's got its own, uh, it just drains you. It's just, we were comfortable and then all of a sudden we're not comfortable. And uh, they hustled us off the airplane, all four doors, the front and the back into a big hangar. And down in the middle of that hangar was a rope line. And on one side, we went in because we were the new guys. And on the other side was all these guys going home. They were going to get on the same plane. And, uh, they, you know, they, they looked like they'd uh, been there a while. And some of them were still in, uh, looked like they'd come right out of the field. And not many, but some would come on over next to the rope line. You know, there would be teasing the new guys. Oh, it's the new guys. You know, you're going to love it here. Glad I'm going. You know, what? Well, I've only got two hours and I'm out of here. And you got 365 days and wake <laughs> up. Yeah. They had fun with it, some of them. Of course, we're all the way there, tired and dejected, whatever. And like, oh, okay, we'll deal with it, just like you guys did. Uh, we, after that, we were sent over for a couple of days in an Army holding uh, area on the other side of the base. I, this was 1971, and President Nixon was was uh, Vietnamizing the war, and we'd done a a pretty good job up to that point of turn, uh, building up their military and their army and their Marine Corps and giving them all kinds of equipment and everything. They hadn't been battle tested up to that point very much. They still relied heavily on American support and American, if you will, some leadership when they would, when they did go out. Uh, but we had heavily turned it over to, to them, uh, or were beginning to in 1970, and that pace picked up in 71. So the South was pretty, uh, in that area was pretty calm. It was still active, active, but not not like uh, I Corps, which is right up next to North Vietnam and Ashaw Valley, and that. And since we flew into Tonsonu, which was one of the two places you'd go into when you were going into country, and the other one's further north, we all thought there were a bunch of aviators. Well, not a bunch, but there were some aviators in the group. 
So we all thought we were going to be stationed in Saigon area. Oh, this, is, this ain't bad. Uh, didn't happen. All of us came down on orders to join the hundred to go to the hundred and first airborne, and it's like, where are they at? You know, we thought being down there, we'd stay down here. But they were up in Icor, right up near the DMZ. They they were stationed in Fubai, uh, and they had Camp Eagle, which was the main part of the hundred uh, first, uh, and Camp Evans, which was north of Way. And then they had fire bases up and down the Eshaw Valley on the higher ridge lines. So we were uh, we were all sent up there, and we didn't know it at the time, uh, but um, we found out pretty soon after we got there that a major operation was being planned. It was dubbed Lomson 719, uh, and we would be in that from beginning to end. And I'll touch just briefly on that, because that was central to my first book, Chariots in the Sky, which is about loosely based on my Vietnam helicopter experience. Uh, but, uh, and this, this operation was designed to, uh, cut off the Ho Chi Minh trail, the supplies going down through Laos, Cambodia, and into the interior of South Vietnam. And let, uh, in 69, President Nixon had authorized an incursion into Cambodia to do the same thing, which was very successful. Uh, it didn't last very long, but it was highly successful in, uh, and, and destroying a lot of, and catching a lot of uh, NVA and, and caches of, of weapons and food. But when Congress and the media found out about it, they basically went, in my terms, nuts. And they and they tied uh, President Nixon's hand and he literally stopped the operation and they, they pulled back across the border. And Congress from that point on uh, prohibited uh, uh, the president from sending American troops outside of Vietnam. So we weren't supposed to go outside of Vietnam. Uh, so I, I fast forward again to 1971 in January. Uh, this operation was designed to uh, give the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese Army and Marines, that they had an opportunity to get, get into the ground and fight as a massive unit and test themselves as part of the Vietnamese program. And they dedicated over 22,000 uh, South Vietnamese military forces, uh, mostly infantry, some rangers, some Marines, and mechanized units. And they didn't have hardly any, they had very few helicopters, so they didn't have the helicopter force to support them. That task fell to the Americans. Uh, and the 101st up there, we had about 680 total helicopters, uh, mostly uh, Hueys, uh, Cobra gunships, Chinooks, three companies of Chinooks, a couple of Hooks, the CH-54s, and uh, of course, Loaches, and, and that came to about 680. So we were totally dedicated to supporting them in this operation. And it officially kicked off on February the 1st. Uh, they reactivated Quezon, which had been closed down after the 68 Tet and the Marines pulled back after the battles was won. Uh, but they reactivated, expanded it, built a much more heliports because we were going to use a whole lot more helicopters than they ever used up there before as staging areas. Uh, and then they started ferrying in with C-130s to Quezon, all these troops. And when the operation started, the Hueys were tasked with inserting uh, uh, Harvin military units inside Laos. And the strategy was to go down a road called Route 9, which was a dirt road that ran deep into, uh, into Laos to a place called Tacoma. It was about 80, 90 miles inside Laos. And that was thought to be one of their major supply depots and areas of operation, if you will. So this was designed to let these fellows go down that road and ultimately get there and, and capture and, and, and deal with any NVA and caches of weapons and food they found as they progressed down this Route 9. Uh, and, and to facilitate that uh, 
strategy, they just they are were going to open up fire bases on both sides of the road in the higher elevation. This road went down through a, literally a valley the whole way in. So both sides, some were closer to the road, some further back were hills or, or higher ridge lines or mountains. So they uh, would want to put in, in which they ultimately did the first couple of weeks, several fire bases on the north and south side of this road on the higher elevations with uh, Vietnamese. And their job was kind of act as buffers and secure the main route so the, the troops and the mechanized units could go down that road and close in on Tacoma. Uh, so the first week or so, the operation went pretty well, and they were able to get in a couple fire bases on both. I think they put in two on the right side and two on the left side, about 10 miles in. Our, I was a Chinook pilot. Our, our Chinook companies were tasked with uh, bringing in the heavy stuff, the 105s, the water blivets, the building supplies the, to, to fortify their uh, their fire bases, uh, keep them supplied in food and ammunition, and that because, as you know, Chinooks do big sling loads. We didn't do any internals inside layouts. It was only externals. We didn't carry troops. We didn't put anything inside the Chinooks. And in a minute, uh, it'll become obvious why. Uh, but we did we did the sling load. So we would bring in the heavy stuff once the uh, the Hueys had uh, inserted the troops to secure the area, and, and we come in with their stuff, and then they build them, and then we keep them resupplied. Uh, for the first about two weeks, that seemed to be going okay, and then they decided, well, they, they leapfrogged out further, another 10, 10 miles or so, put in a couple more fire bases on each side. Now, at that time, by that time, the, the NVA had swarmed the area. Uh, they just brought down everything they had. There, to put this in perspective, by the third or fourth week, uh, the NVA, NVA had over 60,000 of their troops down there and they were literally engaging every fire base we put in and attacking these uh, units as they were trying to push their way down Route 9. And the, the South Vietnamese only had about 22,000 in there, so it was like three to one. They also brought in their heaviest uh, armaments. If you flew helicopters in South Vietnam in the hot LZs, you only got shot at by uh, uh, small arms fire, AK-47s, uh, RPGs, uh, there might be mortar rounds dropping in a little bit and machine guns. Uh, but when we went into Laos and they brought in their heavy stuff, they brought down 20 millimeters on half tracks. They brought down 40 millimeters on the on tops of trucks. Uh, they had a whole hodgepodge of RPGs. I mean, they just rained RPGs on you. Uh, and they had heavy machine guns and they even had uh, some artillery, long wrist artillery started zeroing in on these fire bases. So uh, it was uh, very tough to get in and out of a fire base in, uh, that uh, was put in in Laos uh, by the end of the third and fourth week. And we couldn't go any further out past those uh, four, uh, four or five fire bases we put in on the east side, about 20 miles out. So they weren't even close to their objective. So by the end of the month, we'd taken heavy casualties. Uh, the Arvin were, uh, every fire base that had been put in was being engaged by NVA in some capacity. Uh, we were losing uh, helicopters and helicopter pilots and crews. Uh, and by the end of the first month, uh, we had a saying where if you, once you flew, when you launched from South Vietnam, Quezon, flew across the border into Laos, you had a 50-50 chance of coming back alive. I mean, the and, and I'm going to wrap this up in a minute, but... Uh, so they decided to go out to Tacoma, which is another 40 miles or so out, 
So going into the second month, before they did that, they decided to open up a couple more fire bases a little closer to Tacoma, one of them called Lolo. And when and that occurred on March the 3rd or the 4th of 71, and they tasked uh, three or four heavy uh, lift uh, Huey assault companies to bring in the battalion of Arvin that was going to secure that and set that base up on the first day. When those guys went in, the, uh, this was the bloodiest day of the war for helicopters and helicopter pilots and crews. Eleven of those helicopters were shot down on that fire base the first day trying to get these men in. And another 40 some of them were battle damaged. Uh, several men were hurt, some were killed. But they did manage to get enough guys in there eventually that day to, to secure some of the area. So it, uh, it was really, really a bad day. Uh, as a Chinook pilot, we were tasked uh, later in the week to get it, bring all their stuff in. They still hadn't quite secured that base on the second day. They had to bring in more troops. They got so battered up the first day. But by the end of the second day, they said, yeah, it's secure enough. Bring in the, bring in the Chinooks with the heavy stuff. Uh, so, so we went in, uh, I ended up flying in there a couple of times and every time we were shot at, uh, and, and one time we got close to the ground and we were hit, uh, and it was a mess. We managed to gain some altitude and get back to Quezon, basically do a running crash landing on Quezon. We lost one of the gunners and the guy flying in the left seat with me got, got, had to be medevaced. He got hit really bad. Uh, and that was typical. So uh, by, by that time, we were into the early part of the second month, the decision was made, we're going to stop here. We're going to just send everybody we can into to come and uh, see if we can't capture can do what we need to do. So this was the largest assault helicopter uh, aspect of the war. They sent in like 180, 190 helicopters full of armaments, and they just came from everywhere and descended on this uh, to come. Got there. No, no resistance. There wasn't anybody there. There wasn't anything there. Just hooches everywhere. It was just, it was, you know, they either knew we were coming because there wasn't anything there and didn't like to have been anything there in a while, or they were just real lucky, but, but they knew, uh, they knew we were coming. There's a reason for that. Uh, I'll touch on that a little later or make a comment about it. But uh, anyway, they spent a day or so there and brought them all back. And, and uh, it was a success, the operation. Of, and when we spent the next three weeks trying to get what was left of the South Vietnamese Army on those fire bases that we put in back across the border, it was a slugfest. It was, it was just, it was horrendous. Uh, uh, getting in and out of there, trying to help. You, it's iconic pictures of Arvin hanging onto the skids and jumping on some of the Hueys. I mean, that was real. That was just constant, uh, trying to get those men out of there and get their wounded out first. So it was it was basically a rout. Uh, almost all semblance of military uh, discipline and, and uh, retreat tactics uh, kind of melted away. Some units there did well. The Marines particularly seemed to stand out a little more, some of the Ranger companies, but overall they just fell apart. And that's what the helicopter, our helicopters uh, were, were dealing with, flying in and out there trying to save these men. Uh, at the end of the two months, it, it ended on uh, April the 7th officially, uh, we had to bring in about another 100 plus helicopters from south because we took so many dam, we had so much damage. When it was all over, 108 helicopters had been shot down in Laos and never recovered, 108. And another 620, I think, 25 were classified as battle damage. And of those, about 20% 
were so badly shot up, we just used them for part, spare parts. <laughs> As a Chinook guy, our job was to resupply the fire bases, but we also would be sent in to re recover shot down uh, Hueys and shot down Cobras and shot down Loaches. Now that could get a little hairy <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> uh, but uh, the Hueys would take in a crew and try and secure the aircraft and hook it up. And then we'd come in, hook underneath and pick it up and get it back across the border. Uh, they knew what we were doing and they usually liked the way till we came in to shoot at everybody. So it was always a challenge to try and bring some of those uh, helicopters back. But that was that operation that uh, lasted, uh, I'd say two months. It was claimed back in the States uh, as, a, as a victory and Vietnamization was really going well, but the reality was it wasn't that good. Uh, there were some really good units that fought well and some brave men over there, but overall they, they, they needed a lot of help. They still didn't have enough leadership was one of the many, many problems. And the operation itself, we weren't allowed to uh, land in, in Laos. We weren't allowed to have any Americans on the ground. Unfortunately, very few Vietnamese spoke English and very few, very few of us spoke Vietnamese. So if you're trying to communicate with the guys on the ground, I mean, just think about that. That was a challenge. It was just almost damn near impossible to have, have good communications. Um, so uh, then the rest of the uh, mic tour over there was uh, that battle on uh, that settled down. We pulled out of that area. And we spent the rest of our time basically uh, just running uh, missions around uh, the Ashall Valley, trying to keep them from coming any further inland, which they didn't really do, but there'd be skirmishes and uh, and end up along the DMZ. And the 101st was getting ready to stand down. And my tour ended uh, late December and I came home just before Christmas in 1971. Uh, I was a stationed at Fort Benning uh, where I had a really good job working at the infantry school and on the general staff. Uh, did that for about a year and a half and said, you know, I, I could handle this. This is kind of fun. Uh, a lot of, you know, worked for, worked for a lot of senior officers, met a lot of fine people, uh, did, a, did a lot of stuff. But I, I thought, I, I, and they were still sending helicopter pilots back in seven, the end of 72, going into 73. Not as many, but they were still sending some. Being Chinook qualified and with the experience I had, I thought, oh, you know, they, I got notified that I may be called to go back over. And I said, no, I'm not going back there again. I, uh, if I was a cat, I use my nine lives and then some, and I'm just not going to do that again. <laughs> so I, uh, I asked to get out. And uh, I still think I had about a year or two left on my overall commitment because I'd gone to so many schools uh, before I was shipped to Vietnam. Because I think I was in the Army a little over two, two years when I was finally sent over. Well, two and a half years, actually. Uh, so uh, I uh, requested to get out and uh, I wasn't getting any headway, but the army then, and this was in early 73, was doing rifts, reduction in force, big time of the officers corps. And to some extent, the pilot corps, because they had built this first up, the force up significantly. And then it just kind of wound down real quick when they decided to get out. So they, they had more people than they thought they needed and they were doing a lot of rifting, but they had they had criteria for that, and I didn't fall into that at that point. But the commanding general and two of the full colonels I worked with uh, uh, worked with me and and got and process work, and I was uh, I was allowed to uh, be honorably discharged, and I was discharged from the service in September of '73. Uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I, I thought I, I thought I wanted to go into banking uh, as a career. 
And the commanding general and, and, a, and a Colonel Reidenbaugh, full colonel, one of the men I work with, I have tremendous respect for World War II, Korean War veteran, highly decorated, uh, just an incredible man, multiple linguist, everything, combat, he was he just, wow, just didn't make him none finer. He and uh, another colonel and the general reached out to uh, all the bank presidents in the area and several uh, uh, senior executives in various companies, uh, major companies. They say, we got this guy, he's getting out of service, he's a captain, he's blah, blah, blah. You know, do me a favor and talk to him. If you, you might be able to find a place for him. If you do, he's a pretty good guy. I ended up getting all kinds of interviews and all kinds of offers. And I went with uh, Fourth National Bank, which was a subsidiary of trust company here in Georgia at the time. And I pursued a 20, what ended up being a 28 and a half year banking career. Uh, it was a good career. I enjoyed it. I uh, got a little tired of it at the end, took early retirement. Then when it's a uh, uh, financial consultant here in the Atlanta area for three years, got tired of that, and then said, you know, I, I think I want to teach a little bit. So I, I messed around a little bit with some uh, substitute, and then I applied to a college here that was looking for an instructor uh, to come in and, and build up their leadership management program and be one of the instructors. And I applied, got accepted, and I did that for seven years. I enjoyed that. And then at 65, I said, I'm done. I took full retirement and I've been retired ever since, just traveling, enjoying my family. And in the last couple of years, writing, writing a couple of books. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, both my brothers uh, are, were veterans. My Tom, my middle brother, a Navy pilot, 27 and a half years. But I mentioned earlier, he, he had a distinguished career. He was in a lot of stuff. He was in the first Gulf War. He was an air boss on one of the uh, carriers there. Uh, he taught two years as a guest instructor at West Point. He was on the Pentagon staff a couple of times. He was big into submarine warfare for the Navy. It's huge. I'm assuming it still is. Um, and then my younger brother, Bob, he did two years in the Army. Well, I was in Vietnam, actually. He got drafted and was sent to Korea. And I was there for two, well, a year or whatever and came back. He got out and he was, uh, went in to work with a, uh, uh, as a special agent with the IRS. Did a lot of undercover work and all that. And retired at 50, mandatory retirement at 50. Then 9-11 uh, happened. And sometime after that, he volunteered uh, to work with a private security firm and ended up uh, doing two 18-month tours in uh, Iraq as a linguistics and weapons and explosive expert. And uh, he, I think, had about six months between each deployment. But he was out on those FOBs, forward operating bases, with the infantry guys. And then he comes back, he's back six months, and he goes, oh, I think I'll try Afghanistan. So he goes to Afghanistan for 13 months and does the same thing. And my brother Tom and I always used to laugh. And you know, Bob's Bob's a wild one. He's kind of a cross between Dirty Harry and Rambo. He just he just loved uh, the adrenaline rush. But yeah, he did that. And so we've all, my grandfather, my father, me, and both my brothers all served in some capacity and saw, you know, saw a little action at some point. And that's kind of my history. <laughs> wow, that's a great one. Larry, and, and what an interesting uh, transition from being in college to suddenly finding yourself in Vietnam. A couple of reactions. So if I understand correctly, you were on track to be a pilot in the Air Force, and you suddenly found out you got drafted into the Army. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. Well, you just kind of you just kind of glossed over that like it wasn't a big thing. But what, what were you thinking when you got that message that you were like, hey, you're, you're in the Army now? What were your thoughts on that? That's a good question, and uh, it's a good story behind it. Uh, when I when I got you know I came home and it was there. I was of course uh, I was 
I was going, what is this all about, you know? And so I contacted my draft board and I said, look, fellas, uh, now I got it. Well, let me back up. My draft board was in Arcadia, Florida, which is a small town that doesn't have a whole lot of men in it uh, of draft age. See, my dad was still in uh, Puerto Rico uh, when I went and started college and turned 18. So I had to register. My grandparents, grandfather and grandmother lived in Arcadia. So I registered in Arcadia. Uh, that, you know, well, I can't say it was a mistake because they pretty much drafted everybody no matter what board you were under, but it was a very small draft board. So uh, when I got the notice, I notified them right away. I said, hey, I notified them that I'd been accepted way back and sent them all that. And I thought, no problem. Uh, and then I get, I get the notice and uh, I contacted them and tried to plead my case and they simply would not give me a, a deferment. They said, we have a, they had quotas they had to meet. I don't know. And it wasn't many for Arcadia at the time that, cause there weren't that many in, uh, many young people in Arcadia. But anyway, they had a quota and I was an outside guy. I wasn't from there. So you know, I, <laughs> I was history as far as they were concerned. So they, I, I met, uh, helped make their quota that, that time. Uh, and I just accepted it. Um, I wasn't happy about it. Um, went up to my, uh, uh, went up to the draft uh, physical, and I think it was in Montgomery, Alabama. And Dad put me on a bus, went up there. I was there a day or two, did the physical, came home. Uh, and then uh, a couple of uh, weeks later, I got my notice to report for induction, same place. So I went back, and uh, that night, uh, well, that day we got there and did whatever they did, took us into a room in groups of 30 or 40 at a time, and had us lined up like little squads and we didn't know anything what we we're doing, but, uh, and swore us into the military, you know, hand, right hand, that kind of thing. And now you're in the military. But before they did that in our group, <laughs> this Marine comes walking out of a side door into the room we were in and a uh, big, you know, tough looking Marine guy. And he just walks up and down the line. There was a big space between us and he taps certain guys and, uh, you know, I, after a while, it became obvious he was picking the biggest guys that were in there, and I wasn't the biggest guy. <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> and he would point to that door and send him through that door. And when he was done, he just disappeared. Nothing was said. He did, went and did it and go there. And I think he picked out about seven or eight guys, uh, give or take a few. And then uh, when that was done, they they, they swore us into the army and uh, said, "Okay, tomorrow you're going to get your orders later today, and then tomorrow you're going to ship out." That night, we were in a bay holding several hundred guys, bunk beds. I think were two, 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 uh, and they weren't three. They were two, yeah, bunk beds with two beds stacked up. And it was just a whole bunch of bunk beds in there and a whole bunch of guys. And, oh, God, you could hear them crying all over the place. And we learned that these guys actually got drafted into the Marines. And they ended up taking quite a few. And they shipped them right out. They didn't even let them spend the night. They just, they're gone. And the other guys, you know, oh, Lord, you know, so it was a bad night for everybody <laughs> or just about everybody. And uh, the next morning caught a bus with a bunch of guys and then went to an airport and they flew it. It was about maybe eight or nine of us. We were, we were sent to Fort Dix. Why we were single. Most everybody back then was going uh, Fort Polk and a couple other southern bases. You know, who wants the train to go to Vietnam in the winter? Uh, right. <laughs> There's a funny story there, too, because in the latter part of AIT, advanced training, uh, it was July and August into September, and then October and November into early December was AIT. And, of course, you know that area. It's, it snows in November and December. 
maybe even a little bit in October. It's cold, it's damp, it's, you know, it's just miserable in the snow. We were out training, attacking VC villages, looking for tripwires and snow. And it's not hard to find a trip or black tripwire over a white snow cap. <laughs> so I'm sitting here, is this really meaningful? But just little things like that. Uh, but anyway, that's 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 what we did. But to answer your question, I I, I you know I couldn't get keep my defer I couldn't get deferred, and they took me in, and uh, I just had to deal with. It. Now another little aside, my dad at that time was still in. He was a full he'd been a full bird for a while. And he was a friend of General Curtis LeMay. We all know who General LeMay was. And I didn't play with that. Dad wasn't that kind of guy. But I said, you know, Dad, golly, this just isn't right. You think maybe you could make a call? Dad just looked at me and said, Larry, that's, that's, that's a no-go. Those, kind of, those men uh, back in those days, they just there was a code a lot of them had. You know, it was, it's your life. It's, uh, you got to deal with what comes your way. I know you're my son, but uh, I'm just not going to call up uh, the... Uh, chief of staff of the United States Air Force and say, could you get these guys to lay off my son so he, he can go? He, it, wasn't, it just didn't do it and wouldn't do it. And I didn't ask him to do it, so I was not surprised. Uh, it's just the kind of man that he was, and a lot of men back then were. Uh, you know, so. Well, Larry, you mentioned when you first met your wife that she had lost a husband in Vietnam. How did mm -hmm. she react when you told her that you had to go? Well, they, uh, the thing of it is, uh, I think, you know, it's a good question. Uh, she never, if she had a reaction, she never showed it to me. I think she knew in advance because uh, this is a funny story. When I graduated from OCS, there was three of us. We just, we all got stationed at Benning. Uh, we were all in the same platoon. It was Mac McAdams, uh, who was an Irishman, and Bill O'Connor, who was an Englishman, and then me. And we roomed together off base in the house. And uh, Mac and I weren't dating any women. Uh, and so we'd go out when we could at night and, and, and hit the bars and every once in a while come home with a, with a date, so to speak. But Bill, he had a steady girlfriend from the other side of Columbus, Georgia. And uh, he, he approached me one time and said, Larry, he said, I want to fix you up with a proper lady so that I can get some rest around here. He said, there's no hope for the Irishman, but maybe if I get you a proper lady, I, you know, you guys will knock it off and I'll get some rest. I said, okay, fine. So uh, he had a girlfriend that lived outside town who happened to be the best friend uh, or one of the good friends of my, uh, which Linda, who became a wife, uh, and they fixed me up with a blind date. And I'm sure that, you know, that she knew I was in the army and she knew I was in the infantry and, um, and I'm, she knew I was eventually going to go to Vietnam, but so that never really came up. And, you know, we dated and then we stated some more. And um, by the end of the year, when I got accepted flight school and had a report in January, uh, we weren't, we were probably a little serious, but not real serious. Didn't really know we were going to ask her to marry me at the time. So I went off to flight school and I flew her out there a couple of times while I was out there. And then, you know, we just decided, you know, let's let's get married and uh, we'll get married uh, in June when you're come back. Uh, back then you was you were trained initially out at Fort uh, Fort Walters, Texas in primary. And uh, then you would come back to Fort. Well, you'd go to Fort Rucker where you'd get your advanced training and your tactics and so on and so forth. So I, I graduated primary out there and uh, on a Friday in um, the early week of June. And we had decided before that to get married and we'd get married at Fort Benning in the little infantry chapel uh, while I was on a three day leave to go from Texas to uh, Fort Rucker. 
So I drove all night, got in, got into Columbus, got married the next morning in the chapel, had a little party at, at the officers club, drove down to uh, Panama City Beach, which wasn't much back then, didn't have a room. We found a place on the beach and that wasn't much, but that was our honeymoon night. Next day and got up and we drove to Fort, Ru Fort Rucker and reported in for, uh, for duty and started my flight training uh, on that Monday. So it all was kind of a, you know, a whirlwind's the wrong word, but it just all kind of fell into place. But uh, she took a hell of a chance uh, marrying a, 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 an infantry aviator going to Vietnam. Right, right. Well, so. yeah, Larry, you also mentioned communication difficulties between the Arvins, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam soldiers, and the American soldiers. How did you and your wife maintain communications in Vietnam, which was way, way before the internet era? How did you guys stay in touch? That's a good question. Uh, it would be certainly old fashioned today. Uh, wrote a lot of letters. <clears throat> you know, uh, letter writing uh, was was one. And then uh, tapes, We uh, the old uh, cassette tapes. Uh, I had a player, she had a player, and, and we would uh, exchange tapes, which was pretty prominent back then, too. So those were the two ways. There was a way to call uh, home uh, for three uh, three minutes. Uh, this is this is weird. Uh, if if you were lucky, you could get a, a call to a use a landline in your unit. Excuse me, they would call somebody. Uh, in the area who would hook up with a uh, ham operator somewhere, maybe Hawaii or wherever. And then he would hook up with a ham operator wherever you were trying to get the call to, like in my case would have been Panama City. And that ham operator would get the landline. So you would talk on your landline and then what you, you only could talk real brief, you know, this is Larry, how you doing Linda? And then he would pass that through the ham order and go to and go to Linda, and then she would respond back. So you you would have a three minute conversation with the world, you know, and you could not cover anything, but at least uh, you could you know, you feel like you had a touch touch point at home. Uh, so that I did that occasionally. Uh, you know, that was very hard to do, and it was uh, I I don't remember the logistics of it, but I do remember doing it occasionally. But it was letter writing and. Uh, uh, Tapes. Tapes were big. I mean, I'm looking over here in my office at a trunk that holds all the letters we both wrote and most of the cassette tapes that we sent back and forth. Uh, I don't even have a cassette tape player anymore, but still got the tapes. Uh, and another thing we did uh, before I left, we both agreed to, I uh, got us a, a, each a diary, a small diary, and uh, agreed that we would uh, record on our thoughts or whatever each day in our diary. And when I, when I came home at the end of the year, we'd trade them for Christmas gifts and uh, when I got back, which which we did. And that proved uh, an interesting experience. Uh, I actually used that diary to help me when I wrote my uh, part of my first book, uh, Chariots in the Sky, to recall some incidents and things like that to, to uh, you know, bed them in the story, so to speak. So that, that was our main way. Well, Larry, you got drafted yourself and you were in a draft and volunteer force I joined the army in 1995, so it was all volunteer force by then. What was it like being in a unit in combat with folks that didn't ask to join the army, much less get sent to Vietnam? That's another good question. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, when I went in in 68, and then when I went to Vietnam in 71, I was in an aviation battalion, the 159th. And there were three companies, A, B, and C, Chinook Company. We had 16 aircraft in each one. And we had about 30 pilots, give or take, uh, for each company. And then we had air crews. And, and our company was typical of the three companies. We had the pilots, and then we had the air crews, which consisted of crew chiefs and gunners. And then we had the maintenance group that maintained our aircraft. See, there were no civilians that I'm aware of. It was all military. Uh, and we had, uh, then we had a security force that would provide security for our area. Uh, and we had a motor pool and a supply depot. Uh, and a met, we had our own mess hall in our, our uh, company. Uh, and uh, I think that pretty well covers it. We, but to make a long story short, we had about 250 men in our, in our company. And that's probably typical of the other two. Overall, we were a pretty tight unit. The uh, air crew, the pilots were all volunteers and, and somewhat. Uh, and the career off all the officers and the senior NCOs had either been in a while and they were bomb. Uh, the enlisted group uh, was made up uh, of a combination of draftees and uh, uh, fellows who had you know enlisted in the service and were doing that. I don't know the makeup in our company per se, but overall the morale and esprit de corps in our unit was pretty good uh, and worked, we, we functioned well together. We had some characters in, in there that. Uh, Clearly, some of them were draftees and uh, were, were troublemakers, uh, but they were dealt with pretty quickly. There was no, uh, there was no room for uh, for people in an aviation company to do what we dealt with and and not be able to do their job. They didn't put up with them. Unfortunately, that wasn't true for certain many units in the military over there at the time. I mean, uh, there were just dumping grounds is probably the wrong word to use. But if you had a troublemaker, they tended to get passed on. And eventually they'd find some place where they were put where they could do the least damage, if you will, and didn't uh, couldn't do much with them. Um, but in our unit, it was it was pretty uh, either perform up to a level that was uh, acceptable or we'd move you on. So we didn't have too much problems in our aviation units. Uh, I think in the 101st in general. Uh, my year over there in 71, you know, the war was winding down. We had a lot of issues with drugs. We had a lot of issues with racial issues, but they were uh, probably overblown to some extent in the media and, and portrayed, unfortunately, routinely in all the movies that came out after the war, uh, unfairly, in my opinion. And a lot of guys would share that. Uh, but that's not to say we didn't have those issues because we did. And some of them were pretty bad. But not everybody was a druggie and not everybody had race, race relations uh, issues. So uh, what escaped uh, a lot of folks is that when you're in a combat unit, you're all in it together. I mean, you forget this other stuff. You're an American. You're there. Uh, other people are trying to kill you. Now you, you got to depend on each other. And the guys upstream had to depend on the guys downstream and vice versa. So uh, a lot of that foolishness just didn't go on that much in, in, in line units that were seeing combat. The guys that would go out and serve on the fire bases, that would go out and do the search and destroy and, and provide and the, and the aviation units and so on. Uh, it was more uh, confined to the, uh, confined may be the wrong word, but it seemed to be more prevalent on support bases where there was a lot more time on the guys' hands and 
you know, when you're when you're doing your job, you're busy. When you're not, you had downtime. What do you do? Where are you going to go? There's no place to go. No place to do. So the guys would turn to relief, if you will, and and, and drugs seemed to be one of those reliefs, uh, and so on. So we did. It did occur more. Uh, I think uh, in support units had more opportunity for that. Again, it was in the line units too, but not to the extent uh, that you'd find it in other places. And it was worse towards the end of the war and the beginning of the war. See, in the beginning of the war, uh, early days, uh, men trained together, went over his entire units and rotated together out the men that were left. Uh, and I don't know when that started changing. It's, you know, it changed, started changing maybe 66, 67, certainly by Tet, when 68, when Tet, we had brought in over half a million men with a major unit. And then it became all replacements. So you wouldn't send a unit back and bring another unit in. You just replace the men that you need. And that's when you start losing that continuity to some extent, unit integrity, unit cohesiveness. Uh, you know, my buddies and I train together. We're going to protect each other. You know, you hear the, the Vietnam and it's the new guy, the NFG guy. Um, a lot of truth to that, and toward, particularly towards the end of the war. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was something that I think the Army learned the hard way coming out of that. And the back end is let's met these men and women train as a unit and serve as a unit so that they have some more cohesiveness and uh, had a little more uh, equity into their buddies so that uh, it wasn't just another guy that they just you know, came in. Let's see how long he lasts kind of thing, you know. And I always had this thing when I first got there. Of course, it wasn't that bad in the aviation unit, but still, you know, how does a new guy get to be an old guy if the old guys won't help the new guy? It's just, it made no sense. Made no sense. But anyway, that's the way it was. Well, Larry, let's talk about your writing. Let's start with how you got into writing and let's transition into your most recent book, Legacy of Honor, Patriarch. So how did you get started writing books? Uh, as I tell other folks, uh, I, I'm i not much of a reader. I'm a movie guy, a big movie buff since a little boy. Uh, if anybody approached me or said, Larry, you know, you're going to be you're going to be writing books five years ago. And I look and I said, yeah, you're not you're not you're talking to the wrong guy. That's not even on my radar. I, you know, it's not, not, not something I'm envisioning doing. But uh, having said that, I am a movie guy uh, going back in time. Uh, you know, I came back from being a guy in 73, put it away like a lot of guys. And just, you know, over time I had issues, but I you know, pretty much uh, channeled it, forgot about it. You know, blacked it out, blocked it out, if you will, as a lot of guys did. You know, we weren't very popular when we came back from Vietnam, and we, we were the brunt of a lot of stuff over the years. So most guys uh, just wanted to not be associated with being a Vietnam veteran for whatever their reasons. Uh, didn't bring that up or talk about it, not that they would have anyway. Uh, but when Oliver Stone came out with his movie Platoon in uh, 87 or 88, late 80s, uh, it was pretty popular. And uh, a lot of guys, including me, and I took Linda, went to see that movie uh, here in Atlanta when it came out. We walked out of that theater and uh, you could tell the guys who were Vietnam vets, uh, you know, they were a little shook up. I mean, I, my God, I just came back from Vietnam again. I mean, Oliver Stone did, I thought, a pretty good job of capturing the essence of it. I think he went a little overboard with the race and the drug stuff, but uh, it helped dr the dramatic part of it. But he did, I thought, a pretty good job of portraying what the men on the ground, the grunts, dealt with. And again, being a movie guy, I had been following him a little bit, and I knew he was going to do uh, two more movies about Vietnam. 
um, at some point. You know, a while after that movie, I, uh, I, for whatever reason, was thinking a little bit about, well, you know, it'd be great if we could, uh, someone could make a movie about the helicopter aspect of the war because it was iconic to Vietnam. And if anybody could do it, based on what he did with Platoon, Oliver Stone may be the guy to do it um, and make it as dramatic as he did that. It would, uh, it would, I think, be another successful movie, in my own opinion. And so at some point after that, I was within six months or give or take a couple months, I wrote him a query letter and uh, said, hey, I understand you're going to do two more movies uh, about Vietnam. Uh, any thoughts to maybe making one of them about the helicopter aspect? I've got some ideas and I put them in this letter, sent it to him. And uh, maybe a month or two later, uh, he actually wrote me back and said that he he does have a, uh, two more he's uh, going to make. Uh, he was His second one was already in some form of production. Uh, and that ended up being born on the 4th of July with Tom Cruise. Uh, and he said, my third one, he said, I got a, a storyline, but uh, it doesn't involve helicopters. So, but you got a great idea. He said, what you might want to consider doing is uh, hooking up with somebody that writes screenplays and, uh, you know, see if you can't come up with a screenplay and, 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 and market it and see what happens. It's a tough road. And he says, you know, very few people's screenplays uh, get accepted. He said, but, you know, it's an idea and it's a good storyline. And he said, uh, you know, you might want to try that. And he gave me some suggestions and some contacts and so on. So uh, I took all that and, you know, put it away for a while. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. So about maybe about a year after that, I said, you know, this story is beginning to really burn in the back of my mind. I love movies. I'm a big guy. <laughs> Why don't I try writing a screenplay? So I went and uh, I researched screenplay writing, bought some books about it, bought a, a couple of screenplays uh, and read all that for about a year, studied it. And then I sat down and over the next year and I wrote a screenplay. Uh, loosely based on uh, my experiences. Uh, I, I wrote it as a, a Huey Assault Company, and it was centered all on Lamson 719, because that was the biggest air operation of the entire war, biggest uh, and most costly. So uh, I wrote it about that, and I called it the Flying Packaders. Uh, my unit was the Packaders, but we were Chinooks, but I made it about Hueys, because those fellas bore the brunt of that. Uh, that operation. They were down there on the deck all the time. I digress a minute, but when we go in as Chinooks, we go in real high, get over the fire base, and then just fall out of the sky. And when we got close to the ground, we'd be on subject to the same fire they got. But when we were higher, we didn't get shot at too much. Although they did have SAMs. People don't believe that, but they did have some super air missiles. We had a Cobra shot down and Sam went right through his tailbone. Uh, but anyways, I digress. Uh, so where was I on that? <laughs> Uh, we, uh, I decided to write this screenplay, wrote it, uh, passed it around uh, to a lot of people, got feedback, made some uh, adjustments. And one of the common themes was, well, Larry, if, if uh, this doesn't go good for you or doesn't sell, you can't option it, you might consider writing a book because it would make a heck of a story as a book and you can really get into your characters. I said, yeah, but I, I want I want it to be a movie. So and I, I don't know if I could write a book. So uh, uh, I entered in a screen contest in Atlanta, South Southeastern Screenwriters Contest in the early 90s and got honorable mention. So, you know, a lot of good comments. Some weren't so good, but a lot were good. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get an agent pick me up and we'll see what happens. Didn't happen. So then I didn't give up. I wrote a query letter to 10 production companies out in Hollywood. Uh, 
that indicated they were open to receiving uh, unsolicited screenplays. And I heard back from three of them, sent them my screenplay, and two got back to me pretty quickly saying, we'd like to play your screenplay, but we're, we're not interested in the war genre. The third one I heard took a little while, and then I heard back from them, and they actually called me, and this is funny. Uh, it'd been a month or two since I sent the, the query letter out, and I was, I just finished doing my yard work, it was on a Saturday or Sunday, and I was showering, it was in the late afternoon, and my wife uh, yells at me, Larry, you got a phone call. I'm all lathered up in this shower. And I said, Linda, just take a message. I'll get it when I get out. I said, you're going to want to take the car. I said, Linda, just take the message. Larry, it's a lady from Hollywood. And I want to talk to you about your screenplay. Man, <laughs> you could, I'm standing there dripping soap all over the carpet in the bedroom. And I'm talking to this uh, lady out in Hollywood. And Linda's wrapping towels around me. And we ended up talking for about an hour. She said, we've got your screenplay here. Uh, we've, we've read it. We like it. We're going to kick it around and elevate it up through our uh, our hierarchy, whatever they called it. And it was built more pictures, which is still making movies today. And uh, about a month or so later, uh, they called me back, said we're still interested and they were asking a bunch of questions. So this went on for a couple months. And then uh, I, I got a call and then a letter from them. They were very nice about it. You know, we really liked this good piece of work. It, it, it's definitely a story that, you know, maybe could be made in a movie. But right now we're, we're, uh, we're gonna pass. We have a more genre in post-production and if it does well, we're going to do a sequel and maybe more. Uh, and so we don't want to take on a war genre at this time. And, uh, you know, I was disappointed, but, you know, it was thrilling that that went that far. Uh, she, uh, you know, then we parted company. But about three, four months later, the movie they put out was uh, Sniper with Tom Berenger, which did really well. Uh, and they did a sequel following that. And I understand because I saw the sequel. But after that, I understand they've done five or six sequels of, of the original Sniper. And Berenger apparently was in most of them. But uh, and I got I, I put everything away, said I'm done and boxed it up. And that was like early 90s and forgot about it. Uh, 2018 rolls around and this story was just bubbling up and I said, I'm not getting any younger. I'm retired now. Why don't, why don't I try and write a book? Uh, so uh, that was 2018, 2019. We're going in the end of 19. I pulled it out and was looking at it a little bit and you know, trying to see what I want to do. And uh, as we go into 2019 and you know, of course, January 20, we got COVID and everything's locked down and not going anywhere. I said, well, heck, I'm just going to try writing that book. So I came up to my office and locked the door and spent about nine months writing that book, you know, and uh, then I was very fortunate to find a publisher, uh, published authority, Frank Eastland, and we ended up publishing the book and it's done Chariots of, in the Sky, it's done really quite well. Uh, very pleased with it. Um, um, so, and a lot of folks who served in, over in Vietnam and are Vietnam veterans and our helicopter crews have been very complimentary overall. Of that. I've had many people to reach out to me over the last year and a half. It's been really very gratifying. Uh, so, but anyway, I, I uh, kind of fell into it. Uh, I really enjoyed the experience. And of course, it helps that people enjoyed enjoyed what, uh, the first book. And my publisher says, well, Larry, what uh, you got any other ideas? And I said, well, yeah, I do have this storyline I'm thinking about. And I said, explain to him it's you know, it'd be a one families, three generations of men uh, serving in our conflicts from World War One forward. Be very loosely based on my family's history uh, and uh, make it a trilogy. 
And he said, I like it. He said, uh, write it up as a little summary memo, which I did. And he says, okay, this is good. He says, write your first manuscript and we'll see what, uh, what it looks like. So I went about and I, I ended up writing uh, the first uh, book, Legacy of Honor of the Patriarch. Took about a year. Had to do a lot of research. Uh, World War One's a long time ago. And uh, and then the, well, went through the process. It's been published. It's uh, been out a couple months. It's it's doing quite well, and I get a lot of really good feedback about it. Uh, and it's uh, I dedicate that book to my grandfather, who was a doughboy in an infantryman in World War One, and uh, the men he served with. Uh, and book two now has uh, been named the Sky War. Uh, Sky Warrior. It's it covers World War II, Korea, and the way part of the Cold War. And it's loosely based on my dad's 30-year Air Force career. And uh, that manuscript, the draft, is now in the hands of Frank and the publishing company. We'll be working on that uh, and going through all the editing and stuff, and hope to get that out sometime later this summer. And then book three, which will be called The Descendants. Uh, I'll work start writing that in sometime in the near future, working on it. So that's how I got into it. I fell into it. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of the first book, the second book, and now the one that's just been delivered. So uh, uh, it, it's, it's fun. I like, I live through the characters. Uh, doing the research, I like I like history, American history particularly. Historical fiction, uh, Just it just seemed to kind of be a, a natural fit. And uh, my, with, with, the, with the military aspect, I mean, when you think about it, military uh, and war, is loaded with drama. It's got all the emotions. Uh, you can touch on it in one story. You can touch on many, not all, but many. So there's, and, and, and his, historically uh, in the movies, particularly and in books, uh, they've always, uh, they, they're just a genre that seems to do well overall. That's not why I went into it. It's just that it's one that uh, kind of fit my uh, history, if you will, in my, my upbringing and uh, some of my interests. So that's that's kind of a long answer to the question. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. So I know a lot of vets find writing therapeutic, especially when you did your first book, which was largely based on your experiences in Vietnam. Did you have a similar feeling? Did you think it was therapeutic? Was it refreshing to you to revisit some of those memories or was it hard to write about that type of stuff? That's a good question. Uh <clears throat> I, I, it's, I would say it's both. When I wrote the screenplay, uh, I didn't dive into the characters. You write a screenplay as a brush to go on the screen. So you really don't get into the, the detail of the characters. I mean, you, you create the overall action and, and their dialogue and the scene can help. And, you know, when I did that, I was a couple uh, a couple items in there that, you know, kind of were a little tough. Uh but when I wrote this book, I, that was a more uh, that was that was a little different. Uh, uh, there were light moments in the book, uh, and there's very serious moments in the book. And the serious moments, uh, even when I read it to this day, some of those some of the some of those scenes, if you were, go get teary eyed. You know, like, oh my god, you know, do I really want to read this again? Uh, so yeah, it, it did. It was uh, therapeutic. I've been out a long time when I did the screenplay. Uh, I found that uh, a little bit. And then writing this book, uh, probably a little more. Fortunate may be the wrong word, but I've, I've been able to kind of handle uh, those experiences from 71. Uh, first couple of years I was back, it was a little tough and had some help getting over that. Uh, and there's a, every once in a while, there's a trigger that goes off, you know, and you kind of go, oh, God, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, 
To this day, I refuse to do two things, wait in lines, that's just generally military, or memorize a number. I still got all my numbers written down and Linda, my <laughs> wife's got to tell me, you know, what's my phone number again? That kind of thing. I just, you know, in the military, everything's a number and everything was hurry up and wait, at least my, a lot of my experiences. So, and I, I know a lot of the guys that are, you know, veteran friends over the years kind of say the same thing, but those are two things I just kind of refuse to do. I mean, I, obviously I've still got to remember some numbers and I still got to wait in some lines, but if a line's long and it ain't moving, I just get out of it. I just, <laughs> I'm not gonna put up with it, and I, I don't like to. In the early days, I didn't like to. I love movies, and when I go to the movies, I used to like to sit in the middle so I could see everything. And when for, for several years, I, I refused to do that. I'd feel trapped, so I'd always get on one side or the other so I could get out of there quicker if I if I felt a need to for whatever reason. Uh, but I, that's kind of gone by the wayside. So, uh, but in in writing that book, yeah. I, uh, uh, you know, there's a couple moments in there. It was pretty tough. Uh, matter one, when I first wrote one chapter there, which is near the end, I mean, I was crying. <laughs> it was just all coming back, uh, you know, and bawling. But it was, you know, it was pretty tough. And but it's such a dramatic chapter in in, in, in that part of the book that it hits everybody that reads it because they first say, "Is that did that really happen?" You know, that kind of thing. And, well, it was close. <laughs> so. Well. Larry, I read Legacy of Honor Patriarch, loved it. I think it was great historical fiction. For people who want to get a hold of that book or they want to get Chariots in the Sky, how, how would one go about buying one of those books? How would our readers get them? Uh, you can go to my website, LarryFreeland.com. And when you when you bring that up, uh, it has several drop downs. And you can, you can get a little bit of a history on each book, uh, the synopsis. And then there's a, a little bit of my history. And then there's another one that uh, you can go to and you can, you can review a lot of the, see a lot of the reviews that have been done on both books that we've posted and some of the other articles and, and so on, if you want to get a better feel for the book. And then there's a, another drop down icon and that's called by the book. If you hit that, it brings up the four sites that it's on. The big one obviously is, uh, is uh, Amazon. And it'll bring you right to my book. And then you can go to Barnes and Noble to bring you right to the book. Uh, you can go to uh, BAM, Books a Million, takes you right to the book. And then Indie. Uh, and you're right there and you can you can see the, the, the information they got on the book, particularly on uh, uh, on Amazon. Uh, we posted a picture of my grandfather on, uh, on Legacy of Honor uh, in that in that marketing piece they've got on there. But you can go to that and order it. It's in uh, all forms of uh, ebook and it's in paperback. Or you can go to your local bookstore and order it through them. Um, uh, there are a couple bookstores where I live that are like Barnes down the street and coming carries a limited supply of it. I've gone down there occasionally and signed the ones they had and they put these little stickers on them. It's an author signed, you know, that kind of nice. thing. So uh, that's cool. And there's another little bookstore uh, that carries it right now. But you can get it, you can order it through any bookstore. Okay. Well, Larry, we're coming to the end of the session, but I wanted to turn the microphone over to you for anything that you'd like to wrap up with, particularly if you have any advice for anyone who wants to get into publishing as a veteran or as a Vietnam veteran yourself, if you have anything that you'd like to leave with the veterans, particularly of Afghanistan, which kind of ended very similar to the way Vietnam did. Yeah, that was... Uh... Yeah, that was that was an interesting way to end a war. Uh, well, for the for the newer veterans, uh, 
you know, we all take heed in and, and solace in the fact that all veterans of any war or conflict are going to face some similar issues. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is. And it never fully goes away. I'm 76 years old and there's still moments that come back, you know, triggers, if you will. But you learn to live with it uh, and uh, you learn how to deal with it and just realize that's just a part of what it's about. And that's somewhat dependent, I think, personally on on the experiences you had while you were in the service and, and, and the amount of action you might have seen. You only got to go in, in my own opinion, you only got to be in combat once and you'll carry that with you the rest of your life. But if you're repeatedly subjected to it over time, I mean, it, it can become, I'm guessing, a little more dramatic. I mean, I spent two months flying in out of Laos and that's, uh, like I said earlier, if I was a cat, I used nine lives and then some, and I just didn't want to do that again. Uh, so, you know, it, life is always better in transition. Uh, usually, Transitioning into civilian life, uh, you know, use your network. Uh, other veterans, uh, people that uh, that work in the civilian community, uh, there are some good companies. Well, probably many, but companies out there to look for veterans. Veterans bring a couple of unique skill sets. One, they generally are more mature and and handle and can make good judgment, have, uh, exercise good judgment, more dependable. Uh, they're more disciplined. They have generally a better appreciation for this country, what it stands for. And what people in the past have paid for for uh, what what we enjoy, uh, so uh, they make very dependable uh, workers and managers and leaders. Uh, so we bring a lot to the table. You just got to tap it and go forth, uh, and don't put up with uh, you know don't, don't handle rejection. I can digress one minute on that. When I first got out, remember I told you the general and the colonels set me up with a lot of interviews. Uh, every one of them, with exception of one that time was very respectable and went very well. This was a bank in Columbus that uh, I was uh, asked to come in and interview and they sent me, I was sent to their HR director at the time. And this would have been uh, late 70s, well, in 73, late 70, fall of 73. Make a long story short, this guy was very uh, unprofessional. Uh, he did not like military or veterans and he lived in a military community for heaven's sake. And he was a banker. Anyway, I walk in, he doesn't offer me a seat, and this is this is very vivid, uh, and this was typical back then of the uh, way Vietnam veterans were generally treated in a lot of cases, and I uh, eventually looks up from drinking his coffee, and I, uh, he says, so you're Larry Freeland, you're here for an interview. I said, yes, I am. Still didn't offer me a seat, so I took it on myself to sit down, and he says, okay, well, tell me uh, what you can do, and I don't want to hear you can shoot guns, throw grenades, and fly helicopters. Uh, I stood up, leaned across the desk, and I said, this interview's over. I said, you could offer me all the money in the world, and I wouldn't work for this bank. Walked out, went down to the president's office, Billy Key, and I told his assistant, and I'm Larry Freeland. I came in for an interview that uh, you all asked me to come in for, and I just uh, was insulted by your HR uh, person. Uh, don't appreciate it. Uh, I just wanted your president to know that, and uh, even if they wanted me, I wouldn't couldn't work for a bank that had somebody in their HR department like that. Uh, and he wasn't in at the time, but she took the notes. And the, the next day, I got a call from him apologizing and said I would be receiving a call from his HR person uh, later in the day, which I did. And the guy was crying, and I just hung up on him. And they ended up firing the guy. My, my purpose of the story is you can run into that kind of thing. And I, I did. And that wasn't the only time I ran into something like that. So you just you don't give up. Uh, there are some people out there, so uh, you just you just gotta gotta deal with it.
as far as for writing, uh, you know, I'm new to the game, but I, I, I really enjoy what I've done so far. I, I really get a thrill out of living through the characters and doing the research of the history. Uh, I think you got to have a, a drive to do it. So uh, if you decide to do it, um, you know, lay it out, pursue it, don't give up, uh, and read books about it. Uh, one of the books I read uh, at the uh, recommendation of my publisher was a book on writing by Stephen King. Everybody knows Stephen King, highly successful uh, writer. Uh, and his book he wrote uh, is kind of a personal story of his journey over his writing career, but it's presented in such a way that it's an interesting read and you're learning from it. And it helped me a lot. So I would, I don't remember the name of it, but I think it's called uh, something Lessons in Writing or How to Write, but it's by Stephen King. If you go to Stephen King and look at his books and, and query about the writing one, and you'll bring it up. And it was very, very informative. Uh, but you wanna do some research on that. Uh, I was never a writer. I'm not much of a reader, a big movie guy. My wife's an incredible reader, uh, but I did a lot of writing in my banking career, uh, but that was memo writing. That was uh, analytical writing, uh, investigative writing. It wasn't creative writing or storytelling. Uh, so um, writing a book is all about telling a story, whether it's, you know, a fiction or a nonfiction. So my grandfather was a big, uh, a big storyteller. So I got a little bit of that from him. When we digress one quick minute, uh, we were real close. Two things. One, uh, when I come home from college, and I, I drank then. Uh, I'd go home to Arcadia uh, first two years because my parents still live in Puerto Rico. I'd visit them on weekends and stuff. And Granddad would take me out drinking with him on Saturday night. And we'd sit at the bar and drink a beer or two and. He would be telling those guys all about his cowboy days. He was a cowboy road and he'd have them convinced and he'd never been on a horse, but he was just a good storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was a lot of fun. <laughs> so that's all I could probably say about any of that. Well, Larry, thanks. This was a great session and I look forward to having you back after your next book. When do you think it's going to be published? Well, I hope to get it out sometime mid late summer, but uh, yeah, as soon as it's out there, I'll let you know because uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to you know, share this with you and uh, talk about it. Great. Lake, Larry, thanks again. You've been a great guest and look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thank you. You too. And have a good rest of your week. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields podcast. Many thanks to today's guest, Larry Freeland, to our editor, Michael Neal, to our sponsors, the Epic Times and the Havoc Journal. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. God bless, and until next time, I am your host, Charlie Fink, wishing you good hunting on your own battlefields.